Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Okay, welcome Uda. So let's see, this is content from two programs we have partnership memoir which is basically my first three years at the firm not great time if you know if you've been following the show it was pretty horrible time for me right and then the follow-up to that is rebuilding a consulting practice which was my next three years at the firm which was a glorious time for me right i got promoted every six months basically what i'm doing here is um i am releasing some of the content to the public because we sometimes release content to people who are not subscribers or and primarily because some clients are in part of the world where they just can't afford our content. You know, people from, I'm not going to name countries, but the standard of living is quite low. So we do make some content available for them because I understand that it's not that they don't want to be subscribers, they just can't be subscribers in some cases. So what I want to talk about today is one of the topics we cover in a lot more detail in those programs, but it's almost a case study of what happens when a strategy firm overbills a client. What do you do in a situation where you overbill a client? Now, you could replace this with any statement such as what happens when there's a problem with a client. Because the same thinking is going to apply, but I want to focus on overbilling a client because... It's been in the news recently with some consulting firms and audit firms being accused of these things. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you how I have handled this. Now, the reason I call it a case study is because everything I do is based on my experience. I never put out an episode on anything because I read a concept in a book. The reason I don't do that is because I think first-person accounts matter more than me trying to interpret what someone else said and not even knowing the context and even if it will work. And this is not because I don't trust the other person. I think that first-person stories allow me to dig much deeper and explain the back issues, which are very important so that you can understand the back issues. So that's why I call it a case study. Now, before I get into it, um, I'm basically admitting here that we overbuild a client, which is not something any firm wants a former partner to admit, right? Yeah. Because I'm admitting to, not fraud, it wasn't fraudulent, but we're admitting to a mistake, which given the fact that consultants are not liked very much, I mean, we probably ranked below lawyers and the tax man, <laughs> people would use it. So because I speak to things that actually went wrong, I have to be careful about what I can divulge. As a former partner, I can never divulge a client name. Even if I say good things about a client, I'm not allowed to divulge it. I have divulged one client's name once, but only because everyone knew that we were working with that client. It was public knowledge. In this situation where I'm saying that we overbuilt a client about a real mistake, I have to be extra careful to remove any identifying features about the office, the client, and the firm. Because if you know the office... It's not that hard to figure out the firm I'm going to talk about, right? And who the client is and so on. So this is going to be a very interesting episode. I hope you like it because we're going to talk about something that I think is going to affect everyone in their career, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll give you some background and then we'll go into some of the very interesting detail. So basically, when I became a junior partner, associate principal, well, associate principal is not a junior partner. It's not even a partner. Let's say associate principal. I was good at dealing with clients, 
So the firm would send me around to deal with difficult problems. So if there was a client who was unhappy with an engagement or he didn't like the work being done, they would send me along to help with that. So I was a bit of a troubleshooter. And the reason I was a bit of a troubleshooter is because I never took anything seriously. So if a client would insult me and call me names, I would start laughing in the meeting. <laughs> so I could always diffuse the situation because it never affected me personally. So I was very good at that. I also used to take cupcakes to meetings with clients. That helps. <laughs> that, you know, people laugh at that, but let me tell you something. The act of treating someone with dignity really it makes a big impact because nobody does that. In today's day and age, nobody actually worries about people. So I used to do all these things. So we had a situation once whereby I was one of the partners working for a very large client in Latin America, a big company, energy company, oil and gas, or more oil than gas. But anyway, so I was one of the partners. I was a junior partner on the engagement, but I was uh, dealing with the head of exploration. So I had a very good relationship with the head of exploration. He's one of the EVPs reporting to the CEO, one of, I think, eight senior executives reporting to the CEO. Mm -hmm. I was probably one of, look, it's obviously a long time ago, but I think there were about six partners involved in some way on this. I was one of the most junior partners, I would say, but I had a good relationship with the head of exploration, so I had um, more standing with the client and with the senior partners because the head of exploration was a very powerful executive so the fact that i was close to him gave me standing with the client i wouldn't say the ceo liked me much or maybe that's wrong maybe he didn't know me well is a better way of saying it it's not like i could go into his office and announce <laughs> with him it had to be more protocol so anyway i was in latin america at this point i spent a lot of time in latin america near the end of my career and i remember being called into the senior partner's office and two other partners were there. And all these guys look somber. I mean, they all look sad, like something very bad has happened. And they explain that there's a situation whereby they've realized they've overbilled a client. Now, let me explain just a very important distinction here. When you overbill a private sector client, you can always go to the private sector client and say, you know what, actually, we think the work is worth a lot more. That's why we're going to charge you more. So it's not a big deal. So when people talk about overbilling a private sector client, Unless you've agreed the fee structure in advance with them, it's very hard to say you've overbilled a private sector client. With a state-owned company, it's very different. They agree a rate card with you. They agree that because they're obviously owned by the government, they don't have so much money, they're going to pay only so much per hour. They basically agree a per-hour billing rate. And you have to stick to that per-hour billing rate, which sounds easy, but then things start becoming complicated because they say, well, if the consultants are flying to this facility, we'll only reimburse so much of the cost. We'd only mm -hmm. allow you to reimburse so much of the mobile phone bills. If you bring in a foreign consultant to work on it, this is the exchange rate we want you to use. So it can become a bit complicated. The long and short of it is that we had overbuilt this client by about, I think it was 12% or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the senior executive leading this study we were doing was the head of exploration. So I was called in because I knew the guy very well. And they wanted to know, well, they didn't want to know anything. They're senior partners. They were telling me that, mm -hmm. you know, we have to tell the client this, right? And they wanted this to go on public record because it's government or not? Uh, sorry? Uh, if you overbill um, um, the public sector, are these things that go, that there is a risk that it goes on the public re re record if they are scrutinized. Yeah, I was going to get to that. There's no risk. It goes on the public record. 
Uh, okay. It's not a risk. It goes on the public record. So any work that any consulting firm does for a government entity, you mm-hmm. can get a copy of all the work they did if you know how to file the correct disclosure documents. You can get a copy of the billing statements. You can even get a copy of the expense reports the consulting firm has submitted. So when a rival firm wants a copy of our work, I always think to myself, why don't you just go to the government register and get a copy of our work? It's public it becomes a statement for public record. And it becomes a bit um, messy at times because, you know, sometimes the opposition party uses it as a reason to yeah. fight with the government in power. That's quite common. So that's why we're very careful about these things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they wanted me to speak to the client and they wanted to tell me what they thought the problem was. But they don't know what the problem is yet. They think they know what the problem is. They just found out what it is and they want to tell me. So what I want to talk you through here is how I handle the situation. Because it's important to know how I handle the situation because it's quite counterintuitive. And I've done this a lot because every time there's a problem, the firm would always send me in, right? Not always, but that was my role. I'm sure there were other troubleshooter partners who were a lot better than me. But in the sectors I covered, I was known as someone who cleans up the mess a little bit, right? So basically, I was a janitor, right, if you want to put it in fancy language. <laughs> so anyway, here's the most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to cover this with some diagrams and some way I want to explain this to you. The first one is that when the partners want to tell me what they think the problem is, I actually don't want to hear what it is. And there's a very simple reason for that. If they tell me what the problem is, I have an obligation to explain it to the client because I've heard it. Mm-hmm. If I don't know what the problem is, I can legitimately tell the client, I actually don't know what the problem is. We are investigating but we fixed the problem. Do you want to know what the problem is? Now, here's the interesting thing about this. It's a very important psychology. If you do all your investigations and then you go to the client, you have to disclose what the problem is to the client because you know what the problem is. But if you go to the client as soon as you find out there's a problem, before you know the issue, you can legitimately tell the client, we fixed it, but we don't know what the problem is yet. We'll figure it out. Do you want to know what the problem is? Let me tell you something. 80% of the time, the client doesn't care what the problem is as long as you fixed it. Really? Yeah, they don't care. But yes, now this is the second insight. Why don't they care? Why don't you think they care? I would want to know why, because uh, I would be afraid it would happen again. The client only cares if you create the impression it is worth caring about. Okay. If you mm-hmm. go in there with five partners, you flew in someone from London, because obviously no one cares about us locals. You flew in someone from London, a partner from London who you could never get to this client on short notice. What do you mm. think the client's going to think? It's serious enough that they had to bring in the big guys. Yeah, these guys get together. And this is the insight. You've got to divorce transparency from seriousness when you do disclosures. Mm. I'm very careful about following the letter. So we disclose everything, but the way you disclose it matters. Not the fact that you disclosed it. If you make it in, remember, the client doesn't know what's a problem. But if you signal that this is a big deal, they need to worry about it. The people they brought in to bring calmness to the chaos during a consulting assignment are so worried, maybe they should be worried as well. So that's an insight. Now we're going to go through this and I'm going to talk you through the thinking and how I used to manage all these problems for the firm, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go through, I'm going to show you the thinking and how to manage a crisis what mm-hmm. not to do in a crisis and why it needs to be managed this way. So as you know, I watch an enormous amount of TV, more than the average American. So I use a lot of television references, right? And mm-hmm. I use an, an abnormal amount of television references because people understand television. They watch shows so they can get it, right? 
So the biggest mm-hmm. mistake, the most common mistake I saw that most firms make is that when communicating mistakes, errors, and problems, they confuse transparency for seriousness. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go through the matrix on the left-hand side, but I want to talk through just the points on the right-hand side first. So think about why do people always assume you have to be serious when you apologize or when you disclose something? Do you notice that when people disclose something, they're always serious about it? To convey sincerity. So you have to be serious to be sincere? You mean I can't be a comedian making jokes and being sincere? I think this is why people are typically serious. But uh, if you are very confident and you, you, you trust your, your ethics, then you, should, you could be more relaxed. But I haven't, I've never seen it. I think people believe they have to show they're serious to show remorse. Because unless they show remorse, they're going to be penalized. They're going to be penalized anyway somehow, but they believe that if I show remorse, which is usually conveyed through seriousness, the penalty is less. So they merge seriousness with remorse and transparency. But we are taught this. I mean, if you if you see some of those um, reruns of people going to court, etc., even when you have a rapper who who typically dresses very casually and are cursing all the time. When they go to court, they change and they put on a suit and they try to look very serious because they feel that that's how, if you act otherwise, you will get a, a tougher sen- um, tougher sentencing. That's what that's we true. But think about this, right? The opposite of seriousness is being calm and cool about it. It's not about saying if you're not serious, you have to be a joker about it, right? Yeah, okay. There are many other personality types you can bring into a meeting besides being serious. And there's a difference between someone being in court. They're on trial. At this point, no one even knows what has happened. All we know, there's a mistake in billing. We are going to disclose it. That's very important. We're not hiding it. I'm going to show you that we don't hide it. We are going to disclose it. But the way you disclose it matters. So basically what I feel is that people follow one playbook only when disclosing things. And that's serious. And they believe transparency and seriousness go together. Mm-hmm. And they don't need to go together. And there's a very big reason for that. You make clients worry. Clients don't know there's a problem until you signal there's a problem. They don't know a problem is worth bringing lawyers into a meeting unless you signal it's a problem worth bringing lawyers into a meeting. If you look worried, the client starts looking worried. You they mirror to... what you project. Exactly. They basically mirror what you project. Your goal is to come clean. And I don't want to beat around this it's about coming clean but it's about the way you come clean mm-hmm. you got to tell them a mistake happened in those words but your tone and mannerism matters right and the example i use of this is children mm-hmm. for example imagine your child came home from work from school hopefully not from work that would <laughs> raise problem and the child's about four years old and they say mommy these people are picking at me because i'm fat and if you sat down with the child and you said you know this is very serious This is very, very, very serious what happened because you are 20 kilograms overweight and it's going to have a detrimental effect on you for the rest of your life because people are always going to pick on you. So let's sit down every day for one hour and discuss what we can do about it versus, yeah, those people don't know what they're talking about. You're beautiful. You look wonderful. There are many role models. It's normal. What do you think would happen in both situations? Yeah, in, in the first one, you're making the issue even bigger because you keep you, you, you send off the, the, the message that it's so serious. It requires continuous monitoring and, you know, having these extended painful sessions versus just saying something happened and uh, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, so you're still fixing the problem, but it's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. In the first example, you've always associated 
for the rest of her life, I'm assuming it's a female child, that mm-hmm. child is always going to associate negative vibes with being overweight. Forever. It's, it's going to scar that child. Every time this, the child feels someone is teasing her about her weight, she's going to think, oh my God, my mom said this is serious. It's a big deal. And it generates anxiety. But if you never told something is bad to begin with, and it's normal, then you've created the right emotional attachment to that event. And that's the thing we forget when we do these things. We forget that a lot of times clients look up to us and they don't know how to respond. If we make it bad, it will be bad for them. So what I've done here is I've put up this matrix, right? Mm -hmm. On one side, we've got transparency. On the other side, we've got seriousness. So on the top right-hand corner, excessive transparency and excessive seriousness is the remorse playbook. It's what everyone does. Whenever something goes wrong and they need to come clean on it, which is being transparent, they are very serious about it. Mm-hmm. You know, honey, I'm sorry I slept with my secretary. I didn't mean to. I feel devastated. I wish I could take it back. <laughs> I don't know if there's another playbook for that situation, but everyone, when they come clean about something, they always make it serious. Mm-hmm. There's only like one playbook there. Then there's the other playbook, which is we'll go through each one and I'll talk about them in more detail. Then there's mm-hmm. why I call killing the issue. Killing the issue is where you come clean. But you do it in a way that doesn't connote this is something that's going to end the world. You treat yeah. it as, look, it happened. No big deal. Let's move on. Right? So the idea here is to address the issue but not have it drag on. The issue here is to just address the issue, fix the issue, but don't make your guilt someone else's problem. I feel a lot of times when people are apologizing, they want your forgiveness, but they don't really care. They're doing it for their benefit. So this is about killing the issue. And that's a tactic I follow a lot. You come clean immediately. I mean, like the day it happens, as soon as you can, you come clean about it, right? The other option, which is weighted out, is there's no transparency. You don't disclose it. And there's no seriousness. You just pretend there's nothing there. Now, that's a common tactic that consulting firms and law firms use. When something goes wrong, they don't comment about it. Or they comment in such a way that they disclose nothing and they don't say anything about it. It is a tried and true method. And it works most times, actually. It's, it's, it's a bit, uh, I wouldn't say unethical, but it's a bit, um, I mean, if you know something wrong is happening and then you're not telling your clients, it, you, you're almost abusing the trust that they have in you because they're looking up to you and you're not living up to these ethics. Well, yeah, I think it depends. We make it sound like all the issues in this block are the same. There are some circumstances whereby you don't need to tell your client about it because maybe it hasn't impacted them yet or you fixed it in such a way that it will never impact them. Yeah, okay. Because then you'd also have, um, you'd also have a component of how serious and how fixable the issue is and how early you caught it. And I, my view has always been that if four partners know about this, the client's going to find out in three weeks. If more than one person knows about it, the client will eventually find out. I always say if you're dealing with governments, you always disclose it because it's part of the guidelines of dealing with the government. You have to disclose. If you deal with any government agency, you must disclose things. You don't have a choice in this. You deal with a private sector client, I would still disclose it because I feel that voluntary disclosure actually helps you build a relationship with the client. The client never knew they're going to find this out and you bring it up to them. They actually, initially they may be a bit upset, but over time they think, you know what? I actually appreciate they did this. Yeah. So I don't like the weighted out strategy because I don't think it, while it works, 
It also makes the firm think it will always work. And at a certain point, they're going to try this strategy and it's not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Then I have what is called poking the bear. Now, poking the bear is when something comes out that a firm has done wrong. Mm-hmm. The firm continuously apologizes and says we understand and we're dealing with it, but they disclose nothing. So what are they apologizing about? Uh, it's common. Let's assume that there was a problem whereby a firm has um, helped a state bank. Mm-hmm. And there was a disclosure whereby maybe the advice given may have been incorrect or mm-hmm. there was a bullying problem, right? And there's a huge uproar about it in the press. The firm says, look, we understand people are upset. We are doing our best that we can to understand the situation and resolve it. And you can be certain that we are taking actions to make sure it never happens again. That's All the partners go on and they completely feed that line, but they're not being transparent. You do that and you poke the media. They don't like it. They feel it's insincere and it's almost as if you're treating them like children. Right now. It is definitely patronizing if you if you say the issue or whatever the underlying problem is too big for you to understand or handle so we're just handling it on ours by ourselves but that's all you need to know yeah i feel that in that situation you might as well say nothing because you are saying nothing it's basically saying you know what we made a mistake trust us we're going to fix it but there's no way to verify we fixed it yeah and initially that worked well when consulting was more my view is consulting was more elite in the past because there were fewer firms, so it's easier mm-hmm. to get away with these things. But there's a lot more competition. You can't necessarily do this anymore. I mean, the audit firms especially have become a lot better at what they do. Deloitte, for example, their consulting practice, from what I understand, is quite strong. And PwCs must be strong as well with the purchase of strategy and. Mm-hmm. So poking the bear is never a good idea. Never poke the bear. It will kill you, right? Mm. A bear will maul you to death. So what I have here is the Olivia Pope diagonal. Are you familiar with Olivia Pope? Yes. So the Olivia Pope diagonal is a very interesting concept. Let's assume you're at this point here, right? Yeah. If you are above the diagonal, you are bringing generally more transparency to an issue. So it doesn't really matter at, at the top here, but as we get to the bottom, we get to a point whereby there's almost no transparency but an awful lot of seriousness. And that's pretty much what the show is about, right? A bunch of troubleshooters who hide the issue and everything is very serious in that show. Everyone imagined the world's going to come to an end. And I mean, I basically stopped watching the show in the episode when the mother was biting her wrist to get out of the handcuffs. (laughs) I mean, that was too much for me. I mean, wow, I had nightmares after that. Do you remember that? Yes. (laughs) I mean, that was a disturbing scene. Mm-hmm. So that's the point. In that show, you've got these glamorous people who spend a lot of time trying to disclose as little as possible, but telling you that they are absolutely serious about fixing the problem. When you are in the Olivia Pope diagonal, you're in a problem zone because you are actually upsetting people. They know there's a problem, but you're unwilling to disclose it. Here's the thing. Your entire behavior is telling them it's serious because you bring in big guns to handle it. You don't bring in big gun troubleshooters and big gun senior partners to fix a small problem. You're saying, look, don't worry about it. It's not important. We don't have to worry about disclosing anything. But the mere fact you have this lady, Olivia Pope, telling you that tells you there's a problem, right? It is an issue, yeah. But do you think that um, your approach to damage control would differ depending on how, on the role you play in the issue? Because 
obviously this is something that you addressed in in your capacity of being a troubleshooter but if for example i am let's say i am a product manager and i found something but there are a few people above me in the hierarchy um do you think that the approach would be different just because of where you stand versus the the client or versus whomever you're reporting a problem to that's a good question this technique Mm-hmm. I actually developed this technique when I was an associate, when I did not have the power to even discuss this with a client. Something went wrong on one of my studies whereby we had made a mistake in the financial modeling and overestimated the profitability for a client. And I was told explicitly to not go to see the client again. And one of the partners wanted to have a special meeting with the client. Mm-hmm. I obviously ignored the partner, got in my car and drove to see the client immediately and actually sped through the traffic lights to get there before the partner. And I just nonchalantly went to the client and said, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, you know, we're going through the model and I realized we made a mistake. We put a number that was far too optimistic. Mm. So the numbers you have are now incorrect and we're going to have to change it. And I apologize for the mistake, but it's easy to fix. And the client and I spoke about sports for the next 20 minutes. And then the partner comes in and he says, is everything okay? And I say, yeah, everything's okay. And then I left. The thing with that is I would have gotten fired if it failed, right? Yes. <laughs> you got to take some risks. So here in this situation, you should do this if you mm. have been given the permission to handle the problem only. Okay. If you're not the person given permission to handle the problem, you need to defer to authority because you, can't, you may not be lucky like me and get away with it, right? But what I find a lot of times is that best practices are very theoretical. They don't work in the real world. Mm. So I've been in situations with clients like this oil and gas clients whereby there was a problem. I went to the client. I disclosed the problem and there was no issue. The client said, okay, it's fine. Just make sure that um, you know everything's fixed and doesn't happen again. And that was it. It wasn't even a big deal. Because I was there talking about other stuff and I said, by the way, but now let me talk you through the principles because the principles are important. So the principles, right? One, first one is seriousness and transparency are not a package deal. They're not Siamese twins. They don't go hand in hand, right? Mm. Or shoulder by shoulder, depending on how the Siamese twins are joined. So people always think when I'm being transparent, I have to be serious about it. Transparency is not some religious movement where you have to where conservative clothing cover your shoulders and pray all the time. Transparency and seriousness are completely different issues. Mm-hmm. You can be completely transparent and be a fun person at the same time. Disclose ASAP. This is a big thing for me. Mm. If you disclose before you know everything, you are not lying to the client when you say you don't know everything. You are it's actually quite, misleading them. It is still quite, um, I would say, counterintuitive, especially for... Uh, maybe consulting, but also other other types of uh, of roles where people almost feel that they need to have everything ready, every possible answer to potential questions yes. to move from from being the over prepared, over rehearsed person to I'm completely vulnerable and just telling you I don't know something, and that something happens to be really big because it's a mistake. Well, I think you've got to remember psychology. One is sometimes people have done something wrong. So the reason they're doing the research is not because they're trying to help the client. It's because to see how much liability they're exposed to. Mm, yeah. They'll tell everyone that we're doing it to understand what happens so we can help the client. But they're really doing it for themselves. Mm. They're really making sure that they get their story straight. They have the right legal representation. When people want to know everything before they disclose it, they're not doing it for the client. 
But usually when people want to know everything, they'll tell you they're doing it for the client's sake, but it's really for the client's sake. It's for mm-hmm. their own sake. They want to make sure they don't say something that's going to hurt them later. Okay. So I believe you're going immediately because you have an absolutely legitimate reason to tell the client, you know what? I brought this to your attention as soon as I found out. We fixed it. No problem. I don't know everything. Do you want me to find out what happened or do you, are you okay if we just fix everything? Provided you don't make this into the most serious discussion in the world, mm. clients really care. Now, if you disclose after you know everything, so let's assume you go to the client after you know everything, you have an obligation to tell the client everything. You cannot mislead. Mm-hmm. That is why I don't want to know everything. Because if the client even asks me, I say, I actually don't know. Yeah, and you wouldn't be lying. I'm not lying. I'll tell them, look, the truth is, as soon as I found out about this, I brought it up. The firm is still Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what happened, which is 100% true. Because Mm -hmm. even that meeting when I went to the partners, they were going to tell me what they thought happened. I said, look, if we're not sure, let's find out first before we have all these speculations and so on. But I'll speak to the client about it. Mm-hmm. So troubleshooting, people think it's a serious thing. It's actually quite lighthearted. It's about solving the problem without injecting more drama than is needed. You know, don't turn the disclosure into a circus. I've seen some offices when something goes wrong, they bring in legal counsel, they send a senior partner, sometimes they send a managing partner in here, right? Mm-hmm. It's got to be normal cost of the business. The disclosure must happen through a standard meeting as opposed to a special meeting. You know how I know someone's done something wrong when they want to speak to me? Right now, you know, when firms consulting, how do I know when someone is in trouble and they want to speak to me? If it's outside of the normal drumbeat, they just put a special meeting. Exactly. Or- someone will send me an email saying, Michael, there's something that I need to speak to you about, but I can't tell you what it's about. But it already sets the tone somehow. It's already set the tone that even if they did nothing wrong, they think they've done something wrong. And I'm thinking, what trouble did you cause, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, they make the situation so bad. You remember that in life, you're going to be dealing with problems all the time. When you become a partner, and I was a little bit more of an admin partner than most people where I dealt with issues within the firm, mm-hmm. you deal with problems every day. No one's ever calling you up to say, hey, you did a good job. I'm just going to tell you that you are an amazing partner, and I want to thank you for managing this. No, no one <laughs> does that. When a client's calling me at 9 o'clock at night, yeah, it's probably bad news, right? He's not happy about something. When a senior partner is calling me at six o'clock in the morning, he's not calling me to tell me that you know I'm the greatest person he's ever worked with. <laughs> so don't make it serious because you're creating an anxiety-inducing situation that is going to become normal. The more senior you become, the more you manage things. Even if you don't become senior, the more you manage things. Mm. Always have these situations. You must follow both the law and ethical guidelines. Disclosure is an ethical guideline. Sometimes the law doesn't require that. Mm -hmm. But I think in most countries, if you work with a state-owned enterprise or the government, you must file a disclosure notice. But you've got to file the disclosure notice in a careful way. Don't file the disclosure notice and then tell the client. That is very bad. You've got to tell the client first and then file the disclosure as a normal course of events. It's like serving a notice of divorce and then telling your partner you want to divorce. I'm just the paperwork. <laughs> I've actually seen people do that on television shows, right? No. <laughs> I've actually seen some people do that in the real world as well. So fix the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Look, telling the client what the problem is is very important. Fixing it for the client is important. But you've also got to fix it internally. I've been in some situations where I think there was... Um, malpractice within the firm. There were obviously some situations and dismissals were required, but they're usually things like the partner didn't follow the due process. He signed Mm -hmm. off a form he wasn't allowed to sign off. He made a statement that he wasn't allowed to make. 
he misrepresented the firm. Mm. It's usually not following very important disclosure processes versus an outright act of criminal behavior. I've already yeah. seen an outright act of criminal behavior. It's usually a gray line area. It's important enough of a gray line area that we would dismiss the partner. Dismiss you mean as in uh, firing them, letting letting go or? We never, really let, we never fire the partner, but we make it very clear that they should go away very quickly. But we don't fire them, but we tell them, look, you know that um, yacht you wanted to buy, now is a good time to make a down payment on it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's been situations where people were fired. But it takes a lot to fire someone without forcing them to leave. I've seen situations where partners involved with expense claims, problems, and so on. And even then, they were not fired. They were encouraged to leave the firm. So very rare to see an outright dismissal for something. It's super rare. Mm -hmm. The final point I think is important. If you go to a client and you make the situation really serious, and then you do a favor for them later, the client doesn't see that favor as a gift. They see it as you did something wrong. You owe me this. But if you go to a client and say, you know what, we found a problem, we fixed it. But, you know, by the way, we also thought we will do this for you because you've been such a great client. They see it as a gift. One's a gift and the other one's an obligation. The problem with the obligation is that once they've had that stance with you, you, you never know how, uh, how many of these nice gestures it's going to take until they think, okay, now we're even. So it yes. might be that every other gesture you do is going to be just, oh, why, but they owe me. And it's that grudge from seven years ago. If you read the book, McKinsey's Marvin Bowie mentions this. A client must never feel that you owe them something. So you're doing everything correctly. You're disclosing it as soon as it comes out. You're telling them the facts as much as you know. You're fixing it immediately. But it's the way you do it that matters. So people say that, well, you were a troubleshooter partner. You must have been very difficult. I say, no, it was actually fun. I enjoyed it because I never took it personally. Clients have told me to leave their office and I'd be back there in three days with cupcakes, right? <laughs> and just talk to them. The point is, when people are attacked, they take it personally. There are sometimes I take it personally, but it's very rare. And I quickly adjust out of that mode and say, you know what? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the market's intelligent enough to know what really happened. And they'll figure it out. And also, companies have such a short institutional memory that they're going to forget in six months what happened. At the most, they will forget in two years and everything will change. And in emerging markets, considering the amount of bad things happening, there's always a new headline to replace the front page of the press, right? Yes, definitely. So you don't have to worry about this. You just have to follow the letter of the law and good governance, which is disclosure, 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 fix the problem and take measures. But you can't turn it into something that is so serious that the client feels that they need to introduce new measures to manage it. Mm -hmm. So you almost got to use the situation as a chance to generate goodwill with the client. But uh, assuming you are, you are. Uh, I always go back to my perspective mm -hmm. as somebody who's not uh, who's not yet in the partnership. But if you assuming you have had that client situation and you have addressed it with the client in a non not very serious uh, matter ma manner, would you go to somebody like a partner, for example, who is in a position to do that? that um, gesture so that it becomes a gift because you might be in a position to to explain what the issue is or that you're working on it or that you don't know so you have the part of talking to the client but you don't have the part of inherit the extra thing so at what okay, point is good it point. asking the partner for it okay first thing is that this is very important when i mentioned that I was an associate and I did this. It was actually wrong for me to do that. I did not have permission from the firm to admit a liability. 
Oh, okay, yeah. I'm basically admitting a liability. So that was a big no-no. And when the legal team found out about that, oh, oh, they, <laughs> wanted, they wanted my head on a spike, right? <laughs> Look, what I did was wrong. But I felt there was a better way to manage this. And if you follow my career, look, you don't become a partner so fast by following the conventional process. If you follow the conventional process, you'll get there in a conventional timeline. So I was, people have referred to me as a maverick. I did things differently. Sometimes it paid off, sometimes it didn't pay off, and that's the way it worked. To answer your question, you should not do this unless you have permission to do this. So if something happens and you are going to do something that exposes the firm to a liability or your company to a liability, you need to tell your superior, look, this happened. I think there's a way to manage this. And I think if I go there and deal with it, this is what I will say. This is how I'll manage it. I'll come completely clean. I think we can manage it. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with me doing it? You've got to remember that most companies and even most partners within the firm would not have been as forgiving as the partner that I did this to when I was an associate. They would have gotten rid of me very fast because they would have, their value system is different. They are concerned that if their boss finds out a scapegoat needs to exist and that scapegoat would be you or me. Yeah. So these are high risk things. When I got to a partnership level where the partners have agreed I would speak to the client, that's different. They're agreeing that Michael is the person who's going to manage this and we're letting Michael manage this the way he wants to manage it because he's basically given us a rough idea of what he's going to do. That's different. I have permission there. But as soon as you're dealing with liability issues, it gets very complicated very fast and you need that permission. I would not expose your firm to any liability Mm -hmm. until you know that you are the duly authorized person to do that. But I would make the case of explaining to your company that be careful of making this a bigger deal than it is. You know, I, I see big companies, for example, when something goes wrong, they send lawyers across and so on to explain the problem. I think to myself, why? Would you do that? You already put up a wall before even getting to the discussion. You remember something? A lawyer, rightfully, because that's the business model, is only happy when he's used more because he gets paid more. No lawyer goes in there and says, you know what? I found out a way where I don't get paid for the next year. (laughs) So lawyers will tell you they're doing what's in your best interest, Mm. but it's also a lot of what's in their best interest. And even if they find a way to reduce the liability, they're going to charge you a lot of money for that. So just to recap, you need to disclose. You need to fix the problem. You need to manage it in a certain way. You need to have permission to do the disclosure. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in your life, you have to break the rules, but you have to understand that if you break the rules and you're willing to accept the upside that comes with it, you have to be willing to accept the downside that could come with it. Yeah. You can't say, well... The firm was nice to me because they promoted me after I did that. And if you do the same thing later, you complain because the firm penalized you and it didn't work. You've got to accept both sides of it. That's very important. Mm-hmm. So my last comment here is that when you're managing a potential crisis, your number one goal, number one goal is to ensure the crisis will reach as little of its full potential as possible. A problem is a baby crisis. You're going to decide, are you going to feed that baby and grow it into a strong, strapping lad? Or are you going to find some way to keep it a baby for as long as possible? So most people, when they manage a crisis, they follow this playbook. Because I remember reading a Harvard Business Review article on how to manage a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that a lot of people listening to this will say, Michael, this is not what best practice is. But here's the thing. This is the method I used. And it worked. Now, I'm not saying it will work for everyone. But I'm saying that it worked a lot of times in varied situations. Mm -hmm. You've got to understand that the best practice is written for a certain set of circumstances. 
if those circumstances do not apply to you, you cannot follow someone else's best practice and playbook. It would never work. And to a large degree, I feel that I got away with this and are seen as non-threatening to clients because I was an emerging markets partner. Mm-hmm. And we don't like to say these things, but people from certain parts of the world are looked down upon. They're not seen as threatening. It's easy for them to give tough news to someone because no one sees you as a threat. Like a baby shark swimming in the water. No one's going to come out of the water screaming baby shark without a fin, right? They just kind of play with you, pet you, throw pieces of sardines at you and take YouTube videos of you and so on. So I kind of got away with that because I was seen as non-threatening. you got to remember, you can't just take someone else's playbook. you got to understand how you come across in a situation. If you're someone who speaks loudly and is condescending and cuts off clients and automatically upsets clients, you shouldn't be in that meeting in the first place. Yeah. But if you are that person and you make a situation more serious than it needs to be, it will be trouble for you. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a best practice for anything. There's always a best practice for a unique set of circumstances. Yeah. And you've got to make adjustments as you go through it. So the reason mm-hmm. I put this up here is because I do notice a lot of clients. The majority of firms consulting clients are not case interview clients. We started off there, but now the majority of our clients are people in corporate Mm -hmm. they make up the vast majority overwhelming majority of our clients and at some point in our relationship they will always come to me and say this went wrong what do i do and remember one situation i had a client who wrote to me and said she actually voluntarily resigned from her job because she thought it was the right thing to do and i thought to myself why did you do that but she said that's what she learned to do because she said you got to take responsibility for your action i said but taking responsibility doesn't mean walking away from a situation because clearly you are someone who cares. You've left Mm. the company and someone who may not care as much is now in your place. You may have made the situation worse. You've also, I mean, whatever you've done, and I know what she's done, I'm not going to mention it here. Mm -hmm. You've probably cost the company a couple of hundred thousand dollars to teach you this. Now you have someone who is going to have to learn this all over again and it may cost the company even more. You've basically wasted the training budget of the company. I always thought about it like those, uh, you know, it, this is no, no, no insult to the, to the culture, but like those samurais who kill themselves after they lose one, one um, battle when they could have the potential to win many others. Yeah, exactly. Yes, right. I mean, you see this in the public sector a lot. As soon as something goes wrong, they fire someone. Mm. But even though that person may have been, may be the best person to run things. Just because someone makes a mistake doesn't mean they must be fired. Sometimes they must be fired if they're not willing to learn from it, not willing to accept responsibility, not willing to really adjust the method of doing business, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of clients are going to be, you are going to be in a situation where something is going to go wrong. And let me tell you something, making the situation serious, begging for forgiveness, taking responsibility by basically destroying your career does nothing to fix the problem for the client. Yeah. We live in a society whereby it's almost romantic to commit career suicide. Everyone likes to tell the story of how they did the ethical thing of leaving. How in the world is it ethical to leave your colleagues, your company, and your clients stranded? And that's actually the opposite of being ethical. That's like the captain of a ship. captain of the Titanic said, well, I ran the ship into iceberg. I'm going to commit suicide now. And everyone else can do whatever they want. No, you've got to stay in there and see it through, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not about making a situation more problematic than it needs to be by driving up the drama level like you're on Scandal and on the wrong side of the Olivia Pope quadrant, right? You got to be, you got to keep it cool, Mm. fix the problem. That is the goal. 
The goal of apologizing and coming clean is not to seek forgiveness from a client. Because that's what people do when they go with a serious, remorseful angle. They're hoping they don't get punished. In a way, it's a very selfish way of doing things. Mm-hmm. The goal is to prevent the situation from becoming a speed bump or a wall that you know stops you from progressing further. So mm-hmm. I have to keep everything I say confidential because I'm basically admitting we overbuilt a client. Right? And I can't allow people to figure out who that client is or the firm name and the office name as well. Right? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. In your life, you're going to face this. In your career, you're going to face these situations. Whereby something's going to happen, it's going to be your fault, and you have to figure out how you're going to tell someone. Mm-hmm. But the goal is don't make it bad. You know, I always tell people that you can't be angry with someone when they're giving you pink cupcakes with little <laughs> butterflies on it. <laughs> with a vanilla yeah. smell. How can you be angry with that person, right? <laughs> Make sense? Yeah. Any questions, Uda? No, it's clear. Okay, let's wrap up here for today. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.